Be ye therefore very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, that ye turn not aside therefrom to the right hand or to the left, that ye come not among these nations, these that remain among you, neither make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause to swear by them, neither serve them, nor bow yourself unto them, but cleave unto the Lord your God, as ye have done unto this day. For the Lord hath driven out from before you a great nation, you a great nations and strong. But as for you, no man hath been able to stand before you unto this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand. For the Lord your God, he it is that fighteth for you, as he hath promised you. Take good heed thereof unto yourselves, that ye love the Lord your God. Else if ye do... Else if ye do in any wise go back and cleave unto the, re the remnant of these nations, even these that remain among you, and shall make marriages with them, and go in unto them, and they to you, know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps unto you, scourges in your sides, and thorns in your eyes, until ye perish from off this good land which the Lord your God hath given you. And behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth, and ye know in all your hearts that in all your, and in all your souls that not one thing hath failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spake concerning you. All are come to pass unto you, and not one thing hath failed thereof. Therefore it shall come to pass that as all good things are come upon me, which the Lord your God promised you, so shall, so shall the Lord bring upon you all the evil until he have destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God hath given you. When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed yourself to them, then shall the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and ye shall perish quickly from off the good land which he hath given unto you. Be seated. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose ye this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, we've come to the end of Joshua in uh, the series of sermons that I preach from this book about the book of Joshua and about the man Joshua. And so the title that I've chosen for today is Joshua and his benedictions. And we notice in chapter 23 and in chapter 24 that basically he's giving his last will and testament to the people before his death. Notice that it says in verse 23-1 that he was waxed old and stricken in age. His Joshua and his benedictions. A benediction is one definition for a benediction is the form of blessing pronounced by an officiating minister as at the close of divine service, which we do here every Sunday. But yes, here at the end of his life, Joshua, the officiating minister as such, gives a blessing, pronounces a blessing with the possibility of a cursing 
for disobedience here at the end of his life, at the end of the book of Joshua. I have learned, I have been blessed by this study, and I hope that I... I've been challenged as well in various ways and I hope I'm not the only one that has learned and been blessed and been challenged. So Joshua 23 and Joshua 24. And you might notice that I didn't say that the title is Joshua and his his benediction but Joshua and his benedictions. Seems like there's two of them, one in chapter 23 and one in chapter 24. So you might be thinking about that as to why there was two. Uh, Maybe we'll address that just a little bit later on. I would suggest that one title that we could give to chapter 23 is How God's Ways Work. Joshua 23, How God's Ways Work. And I notice three different ways that God's ways work. In verses 1 through 5 of Joshua 23, we notice how God's grace works. How God's ways work, and especially in verses 1 through 5, how God's grace works. In verse 3 and in verse 5, And again in verses 9 and 10, I would want you to notice, I would want us to notice how that it's the Lord's doings that has brought Israel to this place of victory and of being in the land, in the good land. Did you notice that in the passage that John read, verse 13, verse 15 verse 16 I think all three of those chapter all three of those verses mention that term the good land the good land they're in the land they're in the land and as we think of the book of Joshua and we think of ourselves, as we think of the man Joshua and we think of ourselves, I think it's so wonderful how our experiences, our, the blessings that we have in Christ mirror the blessings that they experienced in the good land in Canaan. But our blessings in Christ are so much better and so much more wonderful and so much longer lasting spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus than theirs were in Canaan, as wonderful as that was. How God's grace works. Well, the fact that they're in the good land, that they're in Canaan, I think we should stress that it was God, that it's God's prerogative. It was God that did it. Look again at verse 3. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 10. Joshua drives that point home again and again. It wasn't them. It was God. 
Verse 3, And ye have seen all that the Lord your God hath done unto all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he that hath fought for you. Verse 5, And the Lord your God, he shall expel them from before you and drive them from out of your sight. And ye shall possess their land as the Lord your God hath promised unto you. How does God's grace work? Well, God's grace works in that it's God's prerogative. These were God's battles. It was God's doing. It's God's power. It was God that provided the victory. Not Israel. Not that they are so great or so strong. It is God. Reminds me of the New Testament verse, uh, Philippians 2.13, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God's good pleasure is always perfect and right and good. God's grace. How does God's grace work? Well, it works because it's God that's doing it. Having said that, and having tried to emphasize that here in just the last few verses, it's God who is at work in our life. God which worketh in us. And as I think of all that, I think of a palm. That goes like this. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. How he bends but never breaks when his, when his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. We notice how God's grace works and God's methods and God's ways are always perfect and right and good. What, when God wants to, really wants a person, be that man or woman, watch his methods, watch his ways. There's another way that God's grace works, and we notice that in verses 5, and again in verses 9 and 10, that there is a part for us to do. There was a part for Israel to do. Do you see in verse 5 that God will do the expelling, he'll drive them out, and then you possess the land. There's a, a part in God's grace. Israel had a part to play. It was theirs to possess the land. It was theirs to act upon God's grace. And that reminds me again of, remember we talked thought about Philippians 2.13 just a few minutes ago. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And the, the, the verse just before that, Philippians 2.12 talks about working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
Do you notice verse 13 says it's God that works in you. Verse 12 says it's God. Or verse 12 says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, I don't understand everything about that, but I certainly appreciate that which I do understand. God works it in. Salvation is of the Lord. And we, by his grace, work it out. How God's grace works... God does his part, which only he can do, and he allows us and expects us to do our part. Beautiful picture of that way back in the book of Joshua. God chased the nations out. He expelled them, but then it was Israel's job to possess the land. Thank God for his grace. And as I think about all that and the combination of faith and works, I think of Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, which you may have heard before. Listen just once again. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he hath before ordained that we should walk in them. How God's grace works. Thank God for his grace. Thank God for how it's displayed even way back in the book of Joshua. So we're thinking about Joshua 23. The title for that chapter that we've given it is How God's Ways Work. And we've noticed how God's grace works. Let's think now in verses 6 through 13 how godly obedience works. How godly obedience works. Verse 6, be therefore very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. That ye turn not aside therefrom to the right hand or to the left. These are very simple concepts. Um, You're familiar with them perhaps. Very simple. Uh, Let's just talk about them and notice them and by God's grace implement them in our lives as we go from here. One of the things that I think about as we think about how godly obedience works is that obedience works by doing some things, doing the things that God tells us to do and not doing the things that God tells us not to do. How basic is that? We learned that from our parents, didn't we? We learned that from our God, from God the Father. Do you see that in verse 6, God, um, Joshua commands the children of Israel to keep. And verse 8 talks about to cleave. Cleave unto the Lord. And verse 11 says, Take good heed therefore unto yourselves that ye love the Lord your God. We're commanded, Israel was commanded, Joshua commanded the nation of Israel to keep all of it, of the Bible. To cleave to God, to love God. Those are the kind of things that we are to do. And Israel is warned here in this chapter, in this passage, not to do other things like, oh, look at verse 7. Don't do these. That ye come not among these nations, those that remain among you. Neither make mention of the names of their gods, nor cause to swear by them. Neither serve them, nor bow yourselves unto them. Talking about idolatry. Idolatry is when something else is 
ahead of or when I love something else more than God. Maybe that sounds familiar from the devotional this evening or this morning. And in verse 12 it talks about um, unequal yoke. This is in the Old Testament. That's mentioned again and warned against in the New Testament. Uh, certainly uh, unequal yoke in marriage. Joshua's pleas are so pertinent for Israel back then, and they are so pertinent for us today. They're for, for you, for me, for all of us together. I think of the verse in the New Testament, Romans 13, 14, that goes something like this. And as I read that, think about what to do. There's things to do, there's things not to do. Romans 13, 14, Put ye on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh. I think of Colossians 3, verses 8 and verse 10, where we are enjoined that we put off all these, but put on the new man. And I think there would be other places in the New Testament uh, that that speak of this very principle of doing the right and not doing the wrong. Obedience works by doing what we're commanded and not doing what we're commanded not to. A simple concept, it just seemed like we should think about that together again today. Another concept, another theme for obedience is that obedience, not only do we do what God commands and not do what he not commands, what he commands us not to, but obedience also works by being serious about it. Not haphazard now, but serious. I noticed that verse 6 in the Amplified Bible adds a few words and, we, and says, Be ye therefore very courageous and steadfast, the Amplified says, to keep... And to do all that is written and so on. And steadfast. We're not supposed to turn aside. Not one side. Not the other side. Not one ditch. Not the other ditch. But to be steadfast and to be serious about obedience. Because haphazard obedience really is kind of like partial obedience. And really partial obedience is just another fancy name for disobedience uh, Joshua is here proposing that obedience includes meticulousness and preciseness I think um, we get that from verse 6 I think I get it I think maybe you do too do we get it though how that obedience is serious complete Total obedience under the Lordship of Christ. Nothing easy about it. Um, obedience isn't really easy. It's not effortless. It's not a matter of having one's foot, feet up on the couch or on the hassock and, or in the easy chair and having... Uh, obedience takes discipline. It takes perseverance it takes the grace of God thank God that he provides the ability the strength and the will to obey him as the Bible teaches
About a uh, long time ago, back in the 1500s, we're told there was a man named Richard Rogers. He was a Puritan, and he was accused of being a little bit too precise. Or we might say today, we might use that L word uh, that people like to throw around pretty loosely, you know, legalistic legalism. He, uh, Mr. Rogers was accused of, of those kind of things, and he said, but I serve a precise God. Maybe that's some things that we should say at times. I think of verse 8, and notice that verb there in verse 8. Do you see it again? Uh, the second word in verse 8, the word cleave. What does cleave mean? But cleave unto the Lord. Cleave means to, uh, to attach oneself firmly. Um, to be joined uh, completely and tightly. Those kind of things. To cleave. That's what we're supposed to do to the Lord. Uh, to, to become tightly attached to God our Father. God our Lord. God our Savior. When I think of the word cleave, I kind of think of two different um, situations. One is spoken of in the New Testament, and maybe you're thinking about that in Ephesians 5, and how that a man is to cleave to his wife, to be firmly attached to his wife. None other but his wife, to cleave, that of married love, romantic love, even the kind of love perhaps when men are gone from their wives on Valentine's Day. Cleave. Cleave to his wife. The other one that I am thinking of is in the Old Testament. It's spoken of in Second Samuel 23. And it talks there about a man named Eliezer. And there are two whole verses dedicated to talking about this man in the Bible that I know of. Eliezer, the son of Dodo. And he was one of David's mighty men. One of the 30 mighty men, the inner circle uh, in David's day. And the Bible there in 2 Samuel 23 says that how he won a great victory. And he uh, had his sword and one can imagine how that he was fighting the Philistines there and he was slashing there and thrusting there back and forth for a long time. And he single-handedly um, took care of a band of Philistines. And the Bible says that his hand claved to his sword so that at the end of the day when all was said and done and the battle was over and the victory was won... It was like his hand and his sword were one. He couldn't let go of the sword. The sword wouldn't let go of him. And I can just imagine that that hand had um, welts by then. And there might have been blood flowing. And the hand and the sword adhered to each other. Cleave. It's that kind of thing that God is calling us to in our obedience to him. Remember, there's nothing simple or easy necessarily about obedience and about steadfastness, but it is so worthwhile and so precious. Obedience to God. He calls us, Joshua calls Israel to that in Joshua 23. God in no less way is calling us to a wholehearted 
serious obedience before him today. I have a reading here as I'm thinking about obedience and how serious obedience is. And this illustration is as illustrations are. There are some things uh, that you might want to take home and consider. There are other things maybe um, that aren't quite right and you could uh, criticize just a little bit. But for those... for how it fits in here, it's not the word of God, but it kind of fits in with this of obedience. Listen, if you will. It's called Just Push. A man was sleeping one night in his cabin when suddenly God appeared. The Lord told the man he had, to work, he had work for him to do and showed him a large rock in front of his cabin. The Lord explained that the man was to push against the rock with all his might. So this the man did day after day. For many years he toiled from sunup to sundown. His shoulders set squarely against the cold, massive surface of the unmoving rock, pushing with all his might. Each night the man returned to his cabin sore and worn out, feeling that his whole day had been spent in vain. Since the man was showing discouragement, the adversary, Satan, decided to enter the picture by placing thoughts into the weary mind he will do it every time. You have been pushing against that rock for a long time and it hasn't moved. Thus he gave the man the impression that the task was impossible and that he was a failure. These thoughts discouraged and disheartened the man. Satan said, why kill yourself over this? Just put in your time, giving just the minimum effort and that will be good enough. That's what the weary man planned to do, but decided to make it a matter of prayer and to take his troubled thoughts to the Lord. Lord, he said, I have labored long and hard in your service, putting all my strength to do that which you have asked me. Yet after all this time, I have not even budged that rock by half a millimeter. What is wrong? Why am I failing? The Lord responded compassionately, my friend... When I asked you to serve me and you accepted, I told you that your task was to push against that rock with all your strength, which you have done. Never once did I mention to you that I expected you to move it. Your task was to push. And now you come to me with your strength spent, thinking that you have failed. But is it really so? Look at yourself. Your arms are strong and muscled. Your back shiny and brown. Your hands are calloused from constant pressure. Your legs have become massive and hard. Through opposition you have grown much and your abilities now surpass that which you used to have. True, you haven't moved the rock, but your calling was to be obedient and to push and to exercise your faith and trust in my wisdom. That you have done. Now I, my friend, will move the rock." When everything seems to go wrong, just push. When the job gets you down, just push. When people don't do as you think they should, just push. When your money is gone and the bills are due, just push. When people just don't understand, just push. And then that reading ends by push. P-U-S-H. Pray until something happens. Well, let's think about 
after having thought about how God's grace works and how, God's obe how godly obedience works, we should notice quickly in verses 14, and 16, 14 through 16 how God's covenant works. Wonderful thought. Wonderful precept. Wonderful promise. Wonderful truth. Verse 14 especially. I just love that verse where Joshua challenges the nation of Israel and says, in my words, can you think of anything that the Lord has not fulfilled his promises? How God's covenant works. Well, God's covenant work by his faithfulness. Numbers 23, 19. You could say it by heart, I think. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and he, will he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? That's a question that you and that I should answer in our own hearts personally once again here today. How God's covenant works. Thank God for his faithfulness. He is just as faithful today as he was in Israel's day back in Joshua's time. He is just as faithful to me. He's just as faithful to you. He's just as faithful to us together. Thank God for his faithfulness. Thank God how his covenant works, how his premises work. So having looked uh, a little bit at Joshua 23, let's move now to Joshua 24. Joshua 23, how God's ways work. And we notice especially how God's grace works, how godly obedience works, and how God's covenant works. In Joshua 24, I would entitle it maybe this way. Joshua's personal response to God's ways. So we noticed in Joshua 23, God's ways. In Joshua 24, especially verses 14 and 15, which is what we'll be zeroing in on, Joshua's personal response to God's ways. And I ask again, why two benedictions? Why a benediction in chapter 23 and another one in chapter 24? I don't know for sure why what all the reasons might be why that was the case. But I do notice, and I appreciate this, that I was helped to see that in Joshua 23, oh, verses 4 and 5 and so on, when Joshua mentions all the things that they had noticed, uh, the, that they had experienced, and how, how God took care of them and granted them victory after victory, uh, day after day. In Joshua 24, do you notice that the anecdotes, the experiences are a little different because it, it starts in verse 2 with um, Tirach, the father of Abraham. It goes back further. So Joshua majors on what these people have seen and noticed and experienced in chapter 23 and reminds them of all those blessings and all those victories that God had done for them. And then in chapter 24, he goes more back into the long term where they, they hadn't ex these people hadn't experienced most of this, but they had heard these stories. It was in their background. It was part of their nation's experience. Not their own, but 
uh, but they're people. So I like that idea. God's faithfulness in the short term, chapter 23, and God's faithfulness in the long term as we look in the past, chapter 24. As I thought about that, I thought of my own personal experiences. I have some stories to tell about God's faithfulness. Um, I have some short-term stories and experiences that where God has blessed me, us, my family, my wife and I. And I'll just list a couple. Maybe yours are not the same, but I think that you could come up with a pretty impressive list of God's faithfulness in your life. Um, I appreciate that all of our children are serving the Lord and are Christians. Now, doesn't mean that I am satisfied with their parents or everything about their parents or everything about them. Uh, as I look at their parents and I look at them, there's lots of things that I could change and where they should grow. But our, our children are Christians. Thank God for that. I think of experiences that we've had together, like our trip of a lifetime when we went west for a month. I think of the times that where our daughter Kathy has been healed, kind of miraculously. I think of our grandchildren and how that our grandchildren think that their grandma is so special. And I just agree with my grandchildren there. And the list could go on. I have two sets or Wanda and I have each have a set of godly parents. Not perfect, but godly. And I admire her parents and my parents. I think more and more all the time. As I look back and see uh, their experiences and their responses to God's working, well, it just does something for me and helps me. My mom is here today, the only one of the, our four parents. And I think of my mom and all, she worked so hard on me, she, so many efforts. And some of them, I think, bore fruit. Thank God. Well, this isn't, thanks, this isn't Mother's Day, but I thank my mom for her example and her help in my life and bringing me to the place where I am today. And then I think uh, in the long term, stories that I've heard, not stories that I have experienced personally, but I, I've heard, I think I know, and I should ask my mom or my Aunt Alta again perhaps, but I think I know that my great-great-grandma came over from Europe and later worked for an Amish family and then later became Amish, and later married my great-great-grandfather. Interesting. Wonderful. I think of uh, two sets of my great-grandparents who were charter members at this church back over a hundred years ago. I think of my two grandpas. And let me just tell you again something that I just kind of learned about one of my grandpas and how it reminded me of my other grandfather. A half year ago or so, uh, Marvin Coffin was here and preached and in the course of his sermon, he talked about my grandpa, how that, which I never knew before, how that when people complained to him about the weather, he would quote that verse from Psalm 118, 
This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will be glad and rejoice in it. And I asked my mom about that later and she said, oh yeah, I remember that he used to do that. So here he's been gone over half a century, a good 52 years, and people still are talking about him occasionally. And that reminded me of what my other grandpa used to say. He, he would say, I heard him say this various times, that there are few people that depend more, whose livelihood depends more than farmers on the weather. But there are few people that complain less about the weather than farmers. Well, all those things went through my mind. Those kind of things, all the blessings and the faithfulness that, of God in my heart, in my life. And you could make up your own lists. Your lists might be longer and more impressive than mine by by far, thank God for his faithfulness to his children, both in the short term and in the long term. So we're thinking about Joshua's personal response to God's ways in Joshua 24. He was, one thing I noticed is that he was resolute about, and, I, and I'm especially looking at verses, verse 15 now, 14 and 15, that familiar and very famous saying for which Joshua is well known for choose you this day whom you will serve but as for me and my house we will serve the Lord he was resolute even if everybody else would serve other gods Joshua said I am resolute I will serve the Lord now with the help of Caleb maybe 50 or 60 years before for a guess, Joshua had modeled and had proven that, that he would serve the Lord even if nobody else did. Well, nobody except Caleb, perhaps. And now, at the very sunset of his life, he goes on record as being as resolute as ever. I'm so impressed by that. I, I love that. He had a choice, you know. He could have served the gods of Egypt, verse 14, or he could have served the gods of, on the other side of the flood, verse 15, and that flood means the river, the Euphrates, I think. Not Noah's flood, but the, Euphra the Euphrates River. He could have served the Amorites' gods, and they all had their separate little flavors of idolatry and, and, and uselessness and wickedness. Notice in those two verses, there are the gods of the Egyptians, there's the gods of the Amorites, there's the gods of those from Ur, but I will serve the Lord, Joshua said. We, he had a choice, we have a choice, we also have a choice of three false gods. There's idols of the world, the flesh, and the devil. that we are up against today and we have a choice. We can follow the world in our appearance. Take our cues from the world. We can do that in our abode. You know, our homes and our houses could become idols and we follow the world. 
We can do that in our activities and our attitudes, all of that, the world. We can follow the flesh and the lust of the flesh. We can follow Satan and become an atheist and become involved in all kinds of satanic and evil things. We have that choice. You do and I do. Oh, that everyone here today in this room, oh, that everyone that's within the sound of my voice would be a Joshua and are resolute in serving the Lord, even if no one else does. I'm so grateful to be part of a church where there's many young men, younger men and younger women that model that. As long as I am a part of this church, I don't think I'm going to have to be alone and resolute even if no one else serves God because you will be here too. I'm so grateful to be a part of a church where men and women model this same resoluteness now as they did 50 years ago. And I look at these people in the front benches and the people over here on the front benches and I'm just so encouraged by that. Thank you for your resoluteness in serving the Lord all these years and decades. Maybe you aren't fully aware of how grateful we are for your faithfulness. Maybe not. Um, well, here's a chance for me, speaking for the younger people, to let you older people know that we do appreciate it and we do notice it and we thank God for that. And maybe, just maybe, you back there should um, meet a few of these resolute older people today and just tell them how much you appreciate their life and witness. Maybe so. Well, he, Joshua was resolute even if, he, if everyone else would serve other gods. Joshua was also resolute even if he knew that he just had a few more days to live. He had often chosen... He had often chosen to be resolute before in the book of Joshua and in his life. And now here at the very end of his life, nothing had changed. And you maybe have already chosen who you, whom you will serve. I think you have. But there's also, thank God uh, that we as a group, serve the Lord Christ. We have chosen that once and for all. In one sense, this is a life commitment of serving the Lord. In another, in another sense, isn't it right that we choose to choose daily to follow God? And some days, many more times than just once. When you resist temptation, when you witness for the Lord, when you stay calm in trying circumstances with your children or with others, in all of those and others, you are choosing by God's grace to serve the Lord. Even if you only have a few more days to live. Joshua was also resolute even though he had other important decisions to make. He was resolute whether 
Anyone else would serve God or not? He was resolute even though he knew he had just a little bit of time to live. He was also resolute even if he had many other important decisions to make. Like, like what? Well, he could have been thinking about funeral arrangements and who was going to preach at his funeral and, and all that. He could have been thinking about choosing the next leader of Israel. He could have been thinking about how he should decide or he could have been thinking about how the various tribes should cooperate with each other as or lots of other things. A little bit like you. You have lots of important decisions to make about like choosing your friends or choosing your spouse or choosing your career or choosing which house you should buy or or any of a myriad of other things. All of them pale. All of those pale before the most decision of all. The most important decision of all. Joshua was resolute even though he had many other important decisions to make. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He was resolute even to the point of his family. I noticed that he said... As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As I think of that, um, maybe I'll just make two points uh, about his family. And the one is a quote by Ray, Ray Pritchard. Here it is. How can a man be so certain about his family? I think Joshua could speak like this because he had taught them well for many years and he knew of their own personal commitment to the same God he worshipped and he had provided a good example for his family to follow. Let no man read these words and think that he may live a careless life and at the end of his life ask God to save his family. To live that way and then to pray desperately at the end is to presume on the grace of God. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then there's a poem, When You Thought I Wasn't Looking, by Mary Rita Corazon. When you thought I wasn't looking, I saw you hang my first painting on the refrigerator, and I wanted to paint another one. When you thought I wasn't looking, I saw you feed a stray cat, and I thought it was good to be kind to animals. When you thought I wasn't looking, I saw you make my favorite cake for me, and I knew that little things were special things. When you thought I wasn't looking, I heard you say a prayer, and I believed that there was a God to talk to. When you thought I wasn't looking, I felt you kiss me goodnight, and I felt loved. When you thought I wasn't looking, I saw tears come from your eyes, and I learned that sometimes things hurt, but it's all right to cry. When you thought I wasn't looking, I saw that you cared, and I wanted to be everything that I could be. When you thought I wasn't looking, I looked, and I wanted to say, th and I wanted to say thanks for all the things I saw when you thought I wasn't looking. And I complete this sermon and this series by reading again Joshua 15, Joshua 24, verse 15. As I come to the end of this series, I think again about one of the thoughts that gripped me at 
before in life and at the beginning uh, about how that in that the Christian life is a battle. But Christians aren't fighting for victory. We see that so well in the book of Joshua that life was a battle for them. Life, lots of battles, but they weren't fighting for victory. They were fighting from victory ground because of Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank God for the victory which is in Christ Jesus. May we go forward and onward in victory, the victory that he provides as we trust and obey. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Will you kneel with me for prayer?